Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. We're just starting the third chapter. Um... Well, the third chapter is, is kind of cool. Um, the Gita is sometimes called fill it in. You guys are you guys are like weird. I'm facing here, so. Why would you do that? Um, the Gita is called the. Oh, maybe that's not good. Get you guys a little too much of the, uh, the window. The Gita is called the Gita Upanishad. The Gita Upanishad, which becomes Gita Upanishad. So the Upanishads are a body of sacred Sanskrit literature. There's two basic types of Sanskrit literature. One of them is called, and this is this division of Sanskrit literature goes back at least as far as Manu. Manu wrote a book called the Manava Dharma Shastra, uh, which is also known as the Manu Samhita. It's a law book. It's a law book. You know, if you listen to a critical review of Islam, um, uh, people will say that one of the features of Islam that's really different than most other religions of the world is that Islam is really uh, Sharia. The first date of the Islamic calendar, like we have, like you know, before Christ and after death, stuff like that, or we have Gorubda, that our year is from the birth of Chaitanya. So year one for us is the year Chaitanya was born, fourteen eighty six. So right now we're in whatever it is, uh, is it uh, two thousand twenty? So fourteen eighty six, nineteen eighty six. So fourteen. We're in five thirty four. Gorubda five thirty four or five thirty five. And so our first day of the year is the day Mahapa was born, Gora Purnima, and the year changes. So like if you meet like a Vaishnava, go to a Vaishnava, and you're, it's like January, they'll be like, oh, I'm really busy. Let's talk about next year. And they're like, what do you mean next year? It's January. But they mean in March after Gora Purnima. So our day one is the birthday of Mahaprabhu, and our year one is the birth year of Mahaprabhu. You follow? And so right now we're in Gora up to 535, I believe. In fact, if I look at my calendar right now. Yeah, 534 Garabda. So like in a traditional lunar calendar made by your religion, according to where you live, 
we're in Gorab to 534. So the first year of the Islamic calendar is not the year Muhammad was born, nor is it the first time he received a revelation from Allah, nor was it when the first, uh, I think it's called a Sutta Sutra, they have a Surah, that's the name of it, the first uh, uh, revelation of, um, from Allah to, uh, to Muhammad was given. Um, but it's the year he conquered Medina and established Sharia law and made everybody follow Sharia law. You follow? That's the first year of the Islamic calendar. So Islam is a system of government. In a lot of ways, it's more like communism or capitalism or democracy or socialism than it is like Christianity. Does that make sense? Now, that's not actually true because originally Judaism was a full form of government. You have Mosaic law. They had like the death penalty for stuff. And when they got in power, they established, you know, this is a death penalty. This gets you whipped. If you read like Exodus and Deuteronomy and these books of the Torah, you'll see that they're filled with rules and regulations and punishments. Stoning to death and all the stuff you see from, from Islam, Hudud, all the like heavy punishments you see in Islam. You'll find they were there in the, 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 the uh, Mosaic culture, the culture of Moses, the Jewish culture. But what happened is at some point, the Jewish people stopped running the government and their faith became more internalized and it became more about your personal relationship with God or your ethnic background or mitzvahs, but became less about ruling. Does that make sense? Christianity, of course, borrows all of their rules from Judaism. If you want to find out, you know, like heavy Christian stuff, you got to go back to the Old Testament, which is the Torah, and then you find out about you find out about Jewish law. So, Islam nowadays is very different because if you if you, you know, if you pull Islam, you find you know half the Muslims in the world, like eight hundred million people, believe in. Uh, you know, uh, the Islamic system of, of law. Whatever, a third to half of the Islamic population believes that Sharia law is meant for everybody, not just Muslims. Tebby, right? If you were to poll Jewish people all over the world, of course, the numbers are, you know, microscopic compared to Islam, but it has 1.5 to 2 billion followers. If you were to poll Jewish people or the Christian people of the world who are a much bigger group, you know, three billion people, and you're to say, do you believe that the laws of the like Old Testament should be enforced? Nobody's going to say, oh yeah, you should stone people to death for planting the wrong crops side by side. Weirdly, they, they do that with homosexuality. You know, they, they, they it's called cherry picking in debate, but they take 
a small section of Mosaic Law, the section that deals with homosexuality, and they say, let's follow that as it was followed thousands of years ago. But then all the other stuff, no, of course we can't follow that. And so you, they, you have to give an explanation for why this deserves to be followed, but this does not deserve to be followed. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're guilty of the, of the logical fallacy of cherry-picking, selective reasoning. So, is Islam like other religions? No, because they still believe in Sharia. And that's what happens. Like, if you look at Islam, they'll go somewhere. Like, they'll go to Indonesia, for instance. They, they, they went there peacefully. They didn't conquer. You know, if you look at any of the contiguous sections of the Middle East, like Islam moved to the West, and they got as far as Vienna, Spain, and then they moved to the east and they got as far as India and actually even in the Mongolia and China. The Uyghurs are you know, a minority of Muslims in China who are undergoing incredible persecution now, thrown in concentration camps. Millions of them. It's like a, nobody knows about it, but it's really far out. Like really heavy. Chinese people know about it. You know about it. I, I found it out on YouTube. I don't know if Chinese people know you found that after coming here on YouTube? Yeah. In the uncensored YouTube? Yeah. Okay. So even Chinese people in China don't necessarily know about it. It's a really heavy crime against humanity, crime against the freedom of religion, um, which is not, you know, a right protected by the First Amendment in China. And so it's, it's heavy. They put them in concentration camps until they get reformed and, you know, stop believing in Islam. Um, but if you look at those areas, Islam spread there by war, man. But if you go to like in Indonesia, they spread there by trade. You follow? Not through war. And so people, they, they practice Islam more as just a religion that they follow personally in their own lives. But then when their numbers get big, the largest Islamic population in the world in a country is in Indonesia. Right? Crazy. Isn't that crazy? It's wild. It's like a third of the Muslim population in the world is in Indonesia. But as soon as they get big enough in a place, then what do they do? They start to establish local courts, local uh, judiciaries, and they start to practice real Islam, which is jurisprudence, which is Sharia law. And so nowadays in Islam, if you're a Muslim in, in, in Indonesia, if you're a Muslim woman walking around, you're not wearing a hijab, a headscarf. They got a group of guys who drive around in trucks and stop you on the street and hand you a hijab and say, put this on. It's heavy, right? Same thing's happening in Africa. You know, they start to institute Sharia law, stoning women to death and whatever in Nigeria. And so people didn't get the memo, hey, we should just practice the internal cultivation part and we shouldn't establish Sharia law for everybody. Like I said, I think it's 500 to 800 million Muslims believe that Sharia law is for everybody, not just for Muslims. And a Dar al-Salam, a house of peace, is a place where the government enforces Sharia. A Dar al-Hard is a place where the government does not enforce Sharia law. Let me say that again. You can have 100% of the population is Muslim, but if Sharia law is not enforced by the government, that country is called Dar al-Hard, a house of war. And Muslims are instructed in the Quran to, 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 to wage war against that place and make it Dar al-Salam. When the government is made Muslim and Sharia law is enforced, then it's Dar al-Salam, the house of peace irrespective of whether the population is Muslim or not, 
It's the government that determines what's a house of war and what's a house of peace. And that means that the God is mandatory. Muslims have to give um, uh, charity and the jizya is mandatory. Non-Muslims have to pay a special tax. And you know, it's not like they just totally destroy houses of worship of other cultures. They did do that in India. So many Muslim mosques are built on top of Hindu temples. That, that kind of stuff did happen. Um, but uh, you know, the, the, the Sharia law is that you can't rebuild those houses of worship of other religions. And so they, they, they're not allowed to be repaired and expanded. And they got to keep it all super DL. Like if you look at the Hare Krishna movement in the Middle Eastern countries, we're not allowed to proselytize at all. We can do our thing as long as like you're an Indian and you're born, you know, a Hare Krishna, you're not a Muslim who's converted. We're not allowed to do anything publicly. We're not allowed to make any displays, public displays of faith. Like if they want to do a Ratyatra, they'll rent an auditorium build a rough cart in the auditorium and walk around in the auditorium. Put on our robes in the auditorium and then put on the appropriate attire when we leave. So it's not that they're completely condemning other traditions, but they seriously kind of castrate them and weaken them so they never become a threat. Which, interestingly, is what the communist government is doing to the Muslims who are trying to practice their faith in China. But they're doing it from a governmental point of view. But in a lot of ways, it's no different because it's their worldview being forced upon another. Um, Anyway, if you go back far enough in time, then India, Hindu India, was also ruled by a book. And the book was called the Manavadharma Shastra. Well, and there's a whole body of books called the Dharma Shastras, which were rule books, which told people this is a punishment, this and that, the other thing. There was a, it was a book of punishments and, you know, crimes and you know, mandatory things and rules and regulations. Because although we've separated church and state, we still have the Bible. The Bible is called the Constitution and everything has to be done according to that. And that's our law. Book. And if you don't follow that book, we'll put you in jail. We wrote it down. It's not like it was like handed down from the gods. We made it up. We say, hey, here are the rights of man, based on a book called The Rights of Man. The rights of Man is based on Plato's Republic. The French Constitution is based on the U.S. Constitution. Benjamin Franklin was involved. A bunch of people were like putting this stuff together a few hundred years ago. And they decided, these are the rules. We the people, in order to form a perfect union, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equally. In our Declaration of Independence and also in our Constitution, uh you know, we, we, we just say, hey, that's what it is. And we wrote it down, and that's it. And everything that we do subsequently has to be in line with that. And if it's not, we have the right to stop you, put you in jail, even kill you, if you don't follow the rules of the Constitution, which are understood to be the natural laws that God intended for mankind. Well, in most traditions, they didn't make that separation of church and state, which I think largely is a good thing. But they didn't make that separation of church and state. Church and state were one thing. But if you look at it like functionally, it's really the same thing. Because somebody's saying, this is the natural order of things. This is what the creator intended. 
our creator has endowed us with certain inalienable rights, such as the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It reads just like a Bible. It's a set of axiomatic decrees representing the natural order of things, holding the authority of God, and ruling a group of people, even people in a secularized country like the U.S. So back before we did that little sleight of hand, that little jujitsu, where you're saying like it's it's not, but actually it has all. It's like it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. I'm saying it's a duck. You follow? But before we did that little sleight of hand, people were, I think in a lot of ways, a little more honest. They were just like, hey, here's our tradition. Here's what we believe. We're a group of people. We all believe the same thing. And so we're gonna, we, we think here's the natural order of things, what God wants us to do. And so here's what we're doing. There's a body of text called Dharma Shastras. In that book, the Manava Dharma Shastra, which has all the rules, Homosexuality was a minor crime. I think it was like punishable by a tax or something like that in the Manava Dharma Shastra. Way different than the Mosaic tradition. Um, in that text, um, it was also religious. And so they gave a bunch of important things for how to understand our own tradition. And so that law book said, hey, there's two types of Vedic literatures. There is Shruti, that which is heard, and there's Smriti, that which is remembered. The Bhagavad Gita fits into which one? It fits into this one, the Smriti. It's the later text. It carries less authority. It's not the original text. But amazingly, for most of Hinduism, these later texts carry more authority. But the law books don't say that. They say this, these older texts carry more authority. If you want to be a really serious Hindu, you have to study the Shruti literature and you have to be able to defend your religion according to Shruti, not according to Smriti. It's like local law versus constitutional law. You follow? You get these constitutional lawyers. They don't really like have that much to do, but they are at the apex. Mostly it's like state law, fed law, but ultimately, if you go big enough, it goes back here, gets all the way to the Supreme Court, and they judge based on constitutional law. You follow? They interpret the Constitution. They're above all the state and local ordinances. They are the ultimate voice. That's the shruti. When it gets chased up the flagpole, everybody has to justify their teachings according to shruti. Shruti has four parts. There's the original Vedic Sanghitas. They're the songs of the Vedas. Om Tadvishnoho Padamam Padagum Sadapa Syanti Surayaha Divivachakshoratatam. That, like, kind of the beautiful Vedic mantras. Those are the Sanghitas. Then you have the Brahmanas. They ritualize those songs and put them into a ritual culture of sacrifice. Then you have the Aranyakas. The Aranyakas are the, hmm, esoteric books written for the forest dwellers, which kind of elevate the game and go beyond mere ritual. And then you have the Upanishad. Upanishad, to sit down near your guru. Upanishad, to sit down near your guru to ask secret things. They have the super esoteric philosophical literature. 
brahmacharis, grihastas, vanaprastas, sannyasis, the four orders of Vedic life. The brahmacharis study the samhitas and recite them. The grihastas do the Vedic yajyas. And then the vanaprastas follow the forest dweller manuals as they renounce the world. And the sannyasis being fully renounced, they study the Upanishads. The four orders of Vedic life of the different chronological things you go through in your life, from student life to married life to retired life to renounced life. Those match up with these four texts. Those are called the Shruti. Then the Mahabharata, Ramayan, they're called Itihasa, they're the Smriti literature. And also all the Puranas, they're the Smriti literature. The Dharma Shastras, they're the Smriti literature. The Agama and Tantra literature, they're the Smriti literature. The Srimabhagatam, being a Purana, is the Smriti literature. They're the ones that Hinduism follows, but they're all built on the older literature. And a good pundit can trace back these teachings to those teachings. And in a heavy debate, everybody gets constitutional. And you have to justify your teachings based on the constitution and show the chronology over thousands of years that gets you to the later literature. So the Gita is Smriti. It's the younger literature, but it's called Gitopanishad. Every chapter ends with this. Thus ends the Gitopanishad. And so the Gita, not in the Gita, but in the, in the, in the Kalafan, in the um, margins of the scribes, they, uh, they, they'll say that thus ends the Gita. You know, the Gitopanishad. And so in commentaries, they'll say that. So that's an attempt to say this is a smriti, but it carries with it the authority of a shruti. You follow? Now, the kind of standard feature of an Upanishadic literature is its questions and answers. And so Arjuna has his meltdown. Krishna just jumps in, slays it, does an amazing job, just, just does such a good job. And Arjuna says, well, tell me about that spiritually minded person. You've already, we've already begun this question and answer. The meltdown at the beginning doesn't really qualify. But Arjuna's starting to ask questions. And there's kind of a helix where things are where they're going on the same information, but they're going into it in more detail. Like a helix that moves around a circle, but also moves forward. Like a great piece of music that goes through the same choruses, but builds those choruses up. You follow? Okay, so what you're going to see now in this chapter is really like what the Upanishads are all about, where disciples ask really good questions of their gurus. And it's not a one-way street. And there's a dialogue. Of course, anybody who's familiar with Socrates, Plato, there's a Platonic and Socratic dialogue. This is like this culture of debate that went through onto Aristotle and, and actually honestly forms like the core of our legal system. There's a whole thing. I don't know how much you guys have studied debate. I'm assuming not much. But there's like, in like classic Aristotelian debate, You've got like the logos and the ethos and the, the pathos. Have you guys heard these terms before? You'll make a logical argument, then you'll make a uh, you'll make a, a uh, an appeal to emotion. That's pathos, where you get the word empathy from. 
and then uh, uh, to feel for somebody. Usually pathos means sorrow, but it also communicates feeling more generally conceived of. And then you have your uh, logos, pathos, and ethos. You establish yourself as a moral person, as a virtuous person, as a person who carries authority and should be listened to. Then there's Kairos. Kairos was the thing of the sophists that like a lot of the guys, they were the bad guys in a lot of like, in like in Aristotle's time. The, the sophists, you know, they were, they were less moral, but they were really interested in Kairos for that opportune moment to like sink your argument. But even Aristotle argued for Kairos. Kairos and Kronos are two Greek concepts of time. One is where you get the word chronology from, the standard concept of time. But Kairos is looking for that exact moment when to fire the arrow and hit the target. Moving target, when to fire that arrow. The exact moment. Um, anyway, yeah, so that's, that's Kairos. The exact moment when you, you take a, um, when you're weaving and you, and you, and you there's something, that, I can't remember what it's called, but there's some like thing in the loom. We have to insert it in the loom in between the fibers at a certain point, I can't remember what it's called. But Kairos is that exact moment where you get that opening and you go where you deliver your proof, where you win the argument. That whole culture of debate is based on questions and answers and back and forth and having a dialogue. This, the Roman Senate was based on it. Modern democracy and our whole judicial system in this country, the parliamentary government's based on it. It's like rich culture of dialogue and discussion and debate. That's the Upanishad. Disciples asking gurus questions, gurus giving answers, and disciples asking follow-up questions and getting to truth deeper and deeper in the truth. So now, because you've heard the second chapter and we've taken the time to really like, dig into it, Arjuna's questions will seem somewhat asinine and foolish and like, what's wrong with this kid? Why doesn't he get it? But many times... If you get good instruction, but your head's wrong, you can't understand. Like, I was just counseling somebody today. Actually, I counsel people like this almost every day of my life, where they just, like, people I know who I have a lot of respect for just sound like the village idiot all of a sudden. And I, like, sometimes I get annoyed, and I have to stop myself because I don't want to get annoyed because I have to, like, empathize and understand they're going through a hard time in their life. And so they're going to be stupid, just like when I'm going through a hard time in my life. I'm stupid. And so they may have to hear the same instruction eight different ways, eight different times, like with like a lot of patience because they just, they can't see clearly because they're blinded. And I can understand that. I can understand that. And so with some empathy, you can appreciate Arjuna's position better. But he asks a question which in a straightforward way seems pretty stupid. but it gives Krishna a chance to go over the same information he's already, already gone over, but he does so in more detail. He does so in more detail. And this happens in the Gita. And this is really the first instance of where Arjuna asks a follow-up question. And you get to see the Upanishadic nature of the Gita in action. Do you guys follow all that? There are other elements of debate. Topopan, it's like the style of the debate that you choose to employ. There's a bunch of different things you do in a debate. But this idea of a back and forth dialogue that's like the core of like our civilization in a lot of ways. 
free speech, a free dialogue, like the Roman Senate at its best. The Greek democracy at its best. You know, parliament at its best. Congress and the Senate at their best. Um, a good legal argument at its best. There's different, in Nyaya, Nyaya is the ancient Indian school of logic. Essentially what a good argument consists of. Nyaya defines different types of discussion. There's Jalpa and Prajalpa and Tarka and Vitarka, where you try to like disprove what your enemy is saying. And like, you know, you're just like, it's like, it's like lose-lose. But the best type of argument is Vod, where everyone is dedicated to truth and truth reigns supreme and everyone is a slave to truth. And people are willing to be wrong in order to be right. And you find a group of people who are willing to discuss something and look for truth. That's Vod. Krishna says in the 10th chapter, amongst arguments, I am Vod. Of the various debate styles, I'm Vod. All right. Good stuff, huh? I never taught that before, huh? You following? You awake? You sure? All right. All right. We should have empathy for Arjun. He's going through a tough time. He needs to hear the same lesson multiple times, just like we do. And we're blessed when we have gurus in our life who will teach us the same message multiple times, spoon feed us, walk along the path of life with us, and not abandon us just because we're being stupid, just because we're foolish, just because we make a mistake, just because we slip up. We want gurus like that. I'm blessed. I have gurus like that. I always see the best in me. Maybe they don't always see the best in me. They always see me, good and bad. But they don't forsake me in my time of need. All right. Arjuna said... O Janardhan, O Keshava, these are epithets for Krishna. Whenever you get an epithet for Krishna, a name for Krishna, you look for the meaning behind it. You look at the rest of the sentence and you get a sense of the mood behind it. Like if I say, hey, honey, could you please bring me that? It indicates affection. You know? You know what I mean? Right? Like my wife wrote to me on publicly on Instagram today. I made a post yesterday on Instagram, which amazingly is going to come up right now in this chapter. I made a post yesterday on Instagram, totally unrelated. I didn't even realize we're going to be studying the exact same subject today. And then my wife commented like about like about how nice she thought the post was or whatever. And I wrote back to her and I called her my love in the post. So that's something I would like, that's it. Like, you know, like I, I wouldn't call my, I don't call my kids that. My love. It's like it's it's like for my wife and my wife alone. That's it. It's like nobody else, nobody else gets called my love in private or in public. So it's like that's a, that's a term of endearment that you know communicates. I'm speaking to my wife and nobody else. I don't think I've ever spoken. I don't think I've ever written to her publicly like that or 
don't think I speak to her publicly like that. Maybe the, the shades of separation of being like online allow me to speak to her publicly. It's like a little too PDA for me. Um, uh, uh, and so when you look at these names for Krishna, you get a sense of what's going on, what's trying to be communicated about the nature of the relationship between Krishna and his devotee. So he calls him Keshava, which means a hairy one, which sounds totally gross. I was, somebody said, like, I, we had the idea of calling our restaurant the Huddy Bowl. Like, Huddy Bowl. Like a bowl, like you eat like a bowl of food. But it was like, no, no, no. It's like the hairy bowl. And it could also be the hairy, another word that sounds a lot like bowl. Um, and we're like, that's super unappetizing. And can't call our restaurant that. Just like a couple of years ago, somebody was like, oh, we're going to call our restaurant the Huggy Bowl. Like some people were calling me from, from Texas. No, was it uh, Chicago? Uh, it was outside of Chicago. Somewhere in Illinois, I can't, Harrisburg, I think. It's in Ellison? No, it's, that's in Pennsylvania. Of course, it's Amish country. <laughs> we have an Amish devotee. Um, anyway, there's some, some, some kind of bird name outside of, outside of uh, Chicago. But they're telling me they're going to open a restaurant. They're like, we're going to call our restaurant the Hoodie Bowl. And I'm like, that sounds a lot like Harry. And they're like, oh, my God. I'm like, yeah, don't do it. <laughs> I've been there, done that. I know. And so, um, I don't know how I got on to that. Oh, the Harry sounds super unattractive. Thank you, whoever chimed in. Was that Ian? Thank you. Um, sounds super unattractive. The Harry one. But it's just like Sanskrit's a different language, it's just a different word. Keshav is like a super sweet name for Krishna. It really means that person with beautiful hair. That person who like has like, 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 like really beautiful, becoming like really beautiful hair. You follow? There is no simple English word which communicates that. Keshav means hair. So there, there is no word. You know what I mean? Rishi Kesh also means like, like kind of like Rishi means like standing up, so your hair is standing up, like real thick hair. But like, you know, it's like, oh, luxurious haired one. You follow? But even that doesn't work. It's not the word hair, you know what I mean? Like, oh, so-and-so with the most beautiful, luxurious hair. You can, like, you got to really like poeticize it to make it work, you know? You know what I mean? And so it's just a different language. I mean, there's a devotee named Vishvareta. I know a devotee named Vishvareta. Vishvareta means universal semen. Which sounds a little gross, you know? But that term, Vishvareta, semen means creative potency. Like, somehow in our culture, it has like a negative connotation to it. But in Sanskrit, it means like creative potency origin of all. And so it's used in a positive sense. Or like Shivalinga. The Shivalinga. The word linga means phallus. It's the Sanskrit word for phallus. And in fact, if you look at Shivalinga, it's a phallus. It's in a yoni. The word yoni means womb. The word yoni in Sanskrit means 
womb. The word linga means phallus. It's like they're not even like pretending. There's no like, there's no like obfuscation. It's the, it's, it's the exact word for those things. But somehow in Indian culture, those things are not considered to be obscene or inappropriate or something like that. In a lot of ways, you know, Indian culture was much more, I don't want to say celebratory of the body, but it was like way less hung up on it. South Indian women don't wear cholis. You know, South Indian women just wear a sari wrapped around. I mean, kind of like see the side thing going on, but nobody looks. It's cool. You know? When my wife was pregnant, she would sometimes wear her shirt pulled up like that so you could see her belly, which I thought looked really cool, you know, kind of celebrating her pregnancy. And then one of the pious members of our congregation, who was a very dear friend of mine, she was like, you cannot have her belly uncovered. A woman should never have her belly uncovered. I'm like, are you like, do you know anything about Indian culture? Have you looked at like Indian sculpture? Have you looked at the stone sculptures on the side of temples? Have you ever seen an Indian painting in your life? Like, are you kidding? The whole midriff area is totally like fair game for public display. It's not like the West, you know? It used to be the nape of the neck. Like in Victorian culture, it was a super risque area that had to be covered by a respectable woman. Like you could uncover the nape of your neck, it was like, wow, you're like a lady of the night or something like that, you know? Different cultures have kind of a different, like different ways of things they think are appropriate or inappropriate or something like that. And so sometimes when you get these epithets of Krishna, they don't exactly translate literally. You got to just kind of like, like allow yourself to steep yourself in a different tradition to really appreciate what's going on. A lot of times with poetry, I mean, I'm really going off on a tangent now, but there's, if you look at the Mimangsakas, which is the first school of hermeneutics, the Vedic school of hermeneutics, there's three meanings of a word. We have two meanings in English. It's denotation and connotation. You have the denotation, it's the dictionary definition of a word. You have connotation, which is what the word carries with the emotional weight of a word, the cultural weight of a word. You follow? Like what a word means in context to people. Give me an example. Denotation versus connotation in a single word. Huh? I did. You're not impressing me at all. Come on. Give me some. I'll have to Google it right now. I have, I have a uh, linguist here who I think must be failing. Uh, I think he must be failing his... Uh, Huh? Okay, the word right could be correct, but it could also be used to refer to uh, sarcastic. That's a connotation of being the opposite. Yeah, right. Like the word really? Yeah, I'm going to do this. I don't trust you guys. <laughs> Think about the word thin, slender. Gaunt. You follow? Skinny. Depending on the context, these words have different meanings. Although literally, the denotation of all these words is the same. They would all be synonyms for one another. But if you look at how those words get used, slender is, generally speaking, a good thing. Skinny, not so much. Gaunt, definitely not. 
thin, it's kind of like generic, maybe good, maybe bad. You follow? There's the dictionary definition of a word, but then there's how those words get used by a particular group of people and what the emotional feeling you have when you hear the word skinny. What does it mean to be skinny? You follow? Right? Like when you hear skinny, what do you think? She thinks eating disorder because she is a therapist who deals with eating disorders. When you're skinny, what do you think? Right. When a woman hears skinny, she thinks good. Somebody tells me you're looking skinny. I'm like bummed. I guess one of my students, like, it was probably 15 years ago, she said, Hey, you look really good. Your arms are a lot skinnier. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, come on, man. <laughs> Why you got to do me like that? <laughs> Put some respect on my name. <laughs> I was like bummed out, you know? But if you say to like a woman, oh, your arms look at skinny, like, oh my God, thank you so much. <laughs> right? Slender. That doesn't make me feel good. Somebody tells me I'm looking slender. No, thank you. Svelte, I can deal with svelte. Can't deal with slender. Skinny, you just insulted me. Right? You follow? These words mean different things to different people. There's the weight of the word, the emotional weight of the word versus the meaning of the word. That's denotation and connotation. Abhidha in Sanskrit is the literal meaning of the word. The word which is abhi, completely da, born by that word. Then you have lakshana. Lakshana is the indicated meaning of the word. Those two terms match up perfectly with uh, the denotation and the connotation. Then there's another meaning of the word. It's called the vyanjana meaning of the word. That's a suggestive meaning. The suggestive meaning of a statement doesn't exist in English. If I say the ball's in your court and we're playing tennis, you can interpret that literally. You follow? You follow? That the ball is literally in your court. You understand? And if I say the ball is in your court to somebody in a different sense, like I'm in a, like I'm in a, a court of law and I finish my argument, I go, the ball is in your court to opposing counsel. That means it's your turn. It's a totally different meaning than the literal meaning. You follow? But we understand what it is. Vyanjana is this phenomenon that takes place within brilliant poetry. Grammarians do not accept that Vyanjana exists in India. Poets say Vyanjana exists. Vyanjana is when somebody says something which is so disguised in the language, which is so almost like a, like a, 
like an optical illusion or like the holographic image. Like there's like, it's like you have to sit and look at that piece of poetry for a year and meditate on it. And all of a sudden the light goes off and you realize something that was hidden in there that no one would ever get at first glance. It's a hidden cryptic meaning encoded by the author that requires you to completely break your understanding of the subject and view the world in a totally different way. And it creates chamatkar. It creates wonder striking, like a wonderment. That's Vyanjana. To appreciate that, you have to suspend your logical mind and you have to kind of like get into a flow with the language and the culture. And so much of Vyanjana's suggested meaning requires you have a deep familiarity with the culture and the language because you could never translate it into another language. It's encoded in that language and that culture forever. You follow? When Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was performing his pastimes, he got a note, a missive, from Advaita Acharya. The note said, please inform the madman, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that everyone has become mad and there is no more need for rice in the marketplace. It's pretty cryptic. It's pretty cryptic. Please inform the madman, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that all others are also madmen. The world has become mad, and there's no more need for rice in the marketplace. A literal understanding of that statement would be that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was being told that everyone is insane, that he's also insane, and that somehow or other that insanity is linked to Maybe in their insanity, they lost their appetite, and therefore, like, they don't need to sell rice anymore. You follow? A little bit of interpretation yields. It's time to wind up your pastimes and leave this world because the whole world has become mad in love of God. The rice here being love of God that we're selling. There's no more need because the whole world has become maddened like you are with love of God. You follow? That's not too difficult to get to. Does that make sense? It requires some interpretation, but with metaphor and analogy and a little bit of poeticism, you can get there. That's the second meaning, the connotative meaning. The actual meaning is that you perform the external purpose of your mission, which is to give the world love of God. Now you should perform the internal purpose of your mission, which is to deeply relish the sentiments of Radharani. If you look 10 verses after that verse is written, it says, from this time forward, Mahaprabhu stopped going out and preaching and began to deeply immerse himself in the sentiments of Radharani. I've read the Chaitanya Chiratamata multiple times. I never noticed it. 
my Sanskrit teacher pointed out to me and said, oh, this is the suggested meaning. This is the Vyanjana Vritti. He said to me, analyze the verse, what do you think? I gave the second meaning. He said, no, it's the third meaning. You follow? Then he said, look, 10 verses later. And I read the verse, and I was like, and I was struck with wonder. I stopped, I paused, tears came to my eyes, and I felt like I discovered a great treasure. That's, that's Vyanjana. When you become transformed through the words of our scriptures, through the words of poetry, and like opened your eyes to a world you'd never seen before. And there's a convergence, like a harmonic convergence. It's linked to the words, so it's, it's always Abhida Mula Vyanjana or Lakshana Mula Vyanjana. It's always linked to either the denotative or connotative meaning, but it just spins out in such a beautiful direction that you never could have gone there on your own. And you just, you're stunned. It's like a gift was given from the heavens. Then I, I said to my teacher, I go, or you could take it that all of India had been transformed by Mahaprabhu's cult, and now it's time to preach in the West, and therefore he was calling it time for Prabhupada to come down and preach in the West. And he was, my, my teacher was very happy to hear this because I showed my creativity in giving another interpretation. The world has become mad, and India has become mad, and now it's time to take those teachings all over the world. You follow? But when you look at the actual text, you find that his definition was supported. You follow? So he appreciated me. I said, no, no, no. Your definition is what was meant. I showed my cleverness, but you actually got to the heart of what the poet was saying. Because you could see it there in the text. You follow? So when we look at the Gita, if you really want to understand it, you have to be able to appreciate the culture. A culture where Janardhan, the person whom all people pray to or all people like, you know, look after. Uh, I think the word Ardhana probably is where you get the word ardent from in English. Because Janardhan is the, the person who all people, Jana, pray to. And so I think probably the word ardent is etymologically linked to Ardhana. I'll look it up later. I'm not going to do it now. Um, but the person to whom all people are, are like praying to or and then also Keshava, oh, beautiful one. Really, that's like Keshava means beautiful one. It literally means, oh, one with beautiful hair, or, oh, hairy person. But it means like, oh, beautiful one. Oh, strong-haired person. It means, oh, beautiful one, you know? And so you got to sort of like step into another culture and the way they view the world to appreciate the beauty in their language, which may be a little obscene to you or maybe a lot obscene or you may not quite understand it, but it's like in their context, it actually makes perfect sense. And if you can suspend your own predispositions and swim in the culture of another tradition, you can start to get it. Does that make sense? Man. Anyway, here we are. <clears throat> Why do you want me to engage in this ghastly warfare if you think that intelligence is better than fruitive work? Why do you want me to engage in this ghastly warfare if you think that buddhi yoga is better than karma? Arjuna obviously missed it. Krishna was saying, be linked to me through enlightenment and do your work and fight. You follow? 
but he misunderstood that. He thought there was a dichotomy, but there wasn't. Krishna had already seen them together, married them together. Do your duty, don't be attached. The buddhi or the enlightenment is don't be attached, and the doing your duty is your karma, and in Arjuna's case, that meant fighting the battle. Krishna was totally clear. But Arjuna's asking. Why? Because Arjuna's fun. He just can't get it. And that's okay. Sometimes you, you, sometimes you see it. People can't get something. Sometimes you see they can't get it, and you're like, you know what? You can't get it. Like, it's cool. You do your thing. You can't get it. Because the implications of you getting it are everything's going to change for you, and you're not ready for that yet. So you keep, like, meandering along with, like, your, your partial understanding of reality. Maybe someday you'll be able to figure it out. Right? My intelligence is bewildered by your equivocal instructions. Check it out. Krishna's being accused of exactly what I accuse you of all the time. Equivocating. My intelligence is bewildered by your equivocal instructions. Therefore, please tell me decisively what will be most beneficial for me. Tad ekam vad. Tell me one thing. Tell me one thing. You follow? Of course, Krishna's statement is, don't be attached and do your duty. It's like both things are being merged together. Did it just need to be restarted now? No. We good? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. You guys are also being way cooler. See how you figured it out? We're not like swarming me. <laughs> A little cultural commentary. I mean, I'm bummed at what's going on, what happened in Italy. And I'm bummed at, like, what happened in China. And, like, if you look at the U.S., like, we're losing a ton of people to coronavirus, especially in New York City. It's, like, 30 to 1 versus California. Everybody's all crammed together. Urban environments are not good. But, like, when you look at, like, Italian culture, everybody gets all up close and personal to you. And also in Chinese culture, everybody gets all personal to you. Like if you're talking to an Italian person, you start backing up as they're talking to you. They'll just keep moving forward. <laughs> Same thing happens to Chinese people. It's like a cultural thing where the, the, the concept of personal space is much different than the concept of personal space in the U.S. In the U.S., we have this massive concept of personal space where like, I need like six feet on all sides at all times. I think anybody gets like within four feet of me, it's like I think they're starting a fight, you know? <laughs> and so uh, yeah you guys are getting all up on me and swarming me during the thing I'm like social distance so we're doing that now I feel a lot better okay so Arjuna's sincere but he's spun he can't get it he's not able to see how these things can fit together most things in life, you know, it's like we're taught how to think in a very binary way. We take these bubble tests where it's like it's only one answer is the right answer. Even you do something like with waves and you calculate with waves. Once you dial in all the variables, there's only one route. You follow? 
But life isn't like that. Life isn't like that. I oftentimes give the example. Let's say you got five kids. You got 50 bucks. What do you do on Christmas? You buy one gift for the family? Maybe. You give them each 10 bucks? Maybe. Maybe you take the groups of kids, you do 25 bucks each for like the groups of kids. Maybe one of your kids has terminal cancer, you buy them a $50 gift and nobody else gets a gift that year. Maybe one of the kids is going through a hard time, you get them a more expensive gift and break up the rest amongst the other kids. There's a gazillion different ways you could break it up. Which one's right? I don't know. It just depends on you and what you choose. Sometimes what's right is what you choose. We're not used to that. Even with our word problems, there's just one right answer. When you get into creative writing, when you get into like other stuff like that, you start to get into it's not really what you, the conclusion you come to. It's how you argue for your conclusion. The logic behind your arguments, the, the evidence you give, your ability to think and reason in an elegant way. But we're not trained for that. Arjuna has a very binary way of thinking about things. He wants it real simple and black and white, but it's not actually like that. Krishna needs him to hold several things in tension and engage in polarity management and look at the benefits of like both aspects and theme them together in his life, like with most of them. You're learning how to think more deeply in addition to learning self-realization. It's really brilliant stuff. I'm so grateful to the Hare Krishna movement. I'm so grateful to the Hare Krishna movement. You know, like Paramahansa Yogananda, I don't know if you guys know who he is. He passed away in 1952. He was like totally far out. He did mail order courses in self-realization in the 30s. He was having people say positive affirmations in like the 40s. You know, he tried to splice Christianity and Hinduism, which is so not my cup of tea. But the SRF is still, you know, they're, they're relatively small, but they're alive and well. They're doing their thing. They're, they're strong. Encinitas, Pacific Palisades, they got the Lake Shrine. They're doing good. They got church pews and they wear their shoes in their temples. It's not my thing. Their deity worship is abysmal. They got statues of Jesus and also Krishna. It's like, all kind of mixed up, and they don't actually do any worship. They just have statues. It's not my thing. Paramahansa Yogananda was pretty far out. He, he came to the West, traveled all over, and traveled all over the, the West, like, early. As He looks like Jesus, like it's an emissary. You seen him? He looks like Jesus, like full Jesus. Like, what you imagine Jesus would look like? He looks like that. <laughs> Um, and the pictures they have of him are just like, like gorgeous. Like it's like, it's like otherworldly. He's like so handsome, you know, um, when he was young, like, you're like, you're like, is that a painting? Uh, you know, his big book in the forties, maybe 1946, 47 was autobiography of a yogi. Huge book, super like bestseller. I remember reading it. I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever read at the time. Um, you read it, right? Everybody reads it. And so, um, you know, that's what most people do. They write a cool little book. You have like, um, you have the 3H 
organization. What is it? It's the uh, I can't Yogi Bhajan. Healthy, happy, holy, I think is his thing. Of the three H's. He's got his thing he does for people. All these guys, they came to the West, they had some teachings, and then they modified them and made their own thing. And maybe you can find some semblances of the original culture, but they really made their own religion. You follow? Hare Krishna movement didn't do that. Prabhupada didn't do that. He came and he, are we good or not? Yeah, I did something new and weird, but um, it's gone. Are we back on? Not yet. When do we go off? Um, like 10 seconds. I think I moved up to you. You guys are gonna, um, you guys are gonna hear me repeat myself. Just be cool. Let me know when we're up. Just be cool and get it done. She's right here with a backup phone for you. Your phone is spaz now. We good? Okay, so Paramahansa Yogananda, like all the other gurus, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, whose name should actually be Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, but that's how it's pronounced in India. But Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and then Paramahansa Yogananda, Yogi Bhajan, all these guys, they came up with their thing. Happy, healthy, holy, 3H, SRF, with like their little thing. The autobiography of a yogi, they wrote their little novel. People were stoked on it. There's some semblance. If you know the culture, you can see something in there. But the Hare Krishna movement came and Prabhupada came and they represented ancient literature verse by verse, with the commentary, the way it's traditionally done, and you read this stuff, and you get a full-blown college-level education in an ancient tradition that's also applicable for the modern day. They walked and chewed gum. They seamed it together perfectly. They did the polarity management. They preserved in a very conservative, extremely conservative way. At the same time, they made it accessible. But it doesn't work like that. Liberals make stuff accessible, but they're unrecognizable. Conservatives preserve things, but nobody's attracted to them. Prabhupada managed to just kind of like keep it liberal enough that people could come in, but conservative enough where you got the full Monty. I'm so grateful to the Hare Krishna movement because they gave me a full education in how to think critically and like, and like, 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 an actual full worldview. Like a real culture. You know, I'm just thinking about Thoreau. Actually, it's Emerson. I owed a magnificent day to the Gita. It was the first of books it was as if an empire spoke to us. Nothing small or unworthy, but large, serene, consistent. The source, the voice of an old intelligence, which in another age and climate had pondered and thus disposed of the same questions which exercise us. 
you, if you get the right tradition, if you get a good tradition, a serious tradition, you learn how to think critically. You learn about debate. You learn about evidence. You learn about epistemology. You learn about a worldview. You learn about all worldviews because you learn about what like, a systematic worldview looks like. And for the rest of your life, you can recognize it when you find it. And you can separate the wheat from the chaff. As, we're, as Arjuna is asking these questions, you're getting an education how to think, how to reason, how to come at theism in a logical way, how to come to theism in a logical way, how to quell your doubts and satisfy your doubts, doubts in a reasonable way. It's beyond brilliant. It's inspired. It's revelation. And it's almost like you get a course in Aristotelian logic and debate and like modern day democracy and judicial systems and internal religion versus external religion and the separation between church and state and what those things have in common. All this stuff comes from here. It's just right there. There's this Upanishadic culture, this culture of intelligent questions where you don't stop asking questions until you get the right answer, where there's a continual dialogue, where the guru is also tested, where the disciple is tested, where they have a rich, vital, living relationship that makes sense, that's coherent, that isn't merely mysterious, that isn't merely mystical, that's logical and translogical, that you can use in the world and to take you beyond this world. I'm not even going to get into like, I'm not even going to get into the rest of it because it's, I feel like we've gone for about an hour now. I'm feeling good. I feel like we, we hit a natural stopping point. We'll call it there. Um, if you guys have a question, you can chime in. I'm going to unmute whoever wants to be unmuted. You can do it yourselves. You can unmute yourself. You can also write in as you like. I have a question. Um, Krishna obviously talks about how we shouldn't be attached to success and failure quite a bit. Um, but on the flip side, you know, especially when you look at failure or success, there's so much to, I guess, learn or even have remorse for in some cases. And so when he's saying to be unattached, it's almost like, if you're too unattached, then it can almost create this like sociopathy in a sense where you're not necessarily learning the lessons or getting the deep enough value. So I guess is, let me respond. Yeah. Um, You should, I should, we should understand what our duty is 
we should do our duty. We should be unattached to what happens when we've properly executed our duty. There's room in that worldview to be remorseful when you've made mistakes and not done your duty. There's room in that worldview to go and make amends when you failed in doing your duty, to feel regret, to feel remorse, which in Sanskrit is undocked. Or shuck, you meet the call. Thank you. When you get heated up after the fact, it's called anutap, metanoia, to become thoughtful after the fact. That's Greek for remorse. There's room in that worldview for remorse, for regret, for making amends, for empathy. So to have detachment from success or failure to be linked to a sociopathic mindset is to misunderstand detachment. The detachment is about your detachment to the results, not your detachment from doing your duty, which is why don't be attached to not doing your duty. Mate as, as don't be attached to not doing your duty. So you've mistaken, you've made a misunderstanding that you think to be detached from the results means to not be attached to doing your duty. But Krishna specifically says, don't be attached to not doing your duty. Be attached to doing your duty, but have that be enough for you. When you realize this point, you will then feel appropriate remorse for when you have not done your duty, when you fail your duty, when you betray your duty. What will happen is you won't be attached to the results. You'll understand what's out of your control and what's not. Please respond, uh, Darshan. I'm going to have to think about it, but I, it seems that there's a bit of a fluidity there with what your duty might be in a, in a number of given circumstances. Let me stop you. Let me stop you. Hang on, bro. Yeah. I have not attempted to explain to you how to figure out what your duty is. Mm-hmm. I've merely said that you should be attached to doing your duty and be satisfied when that's done and be detached from what happens as a result. That's what I've stated. The fact that we now have to figure out how to determine your duty and that your duty may change over the course of your life, that's another conversation. I've succeeded in answering your question if I I clarified the point that it's not that you're sociopathic, you're deeply passionate about doing your duty. You're not passionate about the result. 
And that was your mistake in thinking about the subject. That doesn't mean I've given you a complete worldview that requires no subsequent conversations, but I don't want you moving the goalpost on me. Would, mm-hmm. would you mind responding a second time? Well, I guess, so you do your duty and you get a particular result that could be favorable or unfavorable. If it's unfavorable and there's maybe something that you did wrong within your duty at the outset, it seems then like that you, meditating would, on that. Then you would feel And there's room in that for film rust. Let's get heavy. Let's go big. Hold on. Give me a second. Let's, let's just go big. Let's do a thought experiment. And let's see if we can go big with this and get somewhere. And I'm just working through this. Let's imagine, for, for instance, that you are a heart surgeon. Mm-hmm. And you go out there and you perform open heart surgery on a child. And the child dies on your table. You follow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you did your best, you should be able to sleep at night. If you can't find your satisfaction doing your best, you won't make it as a heart surgeon. You'll quit. You'll commit suicide. You'll find another career. You won't be able to do it. Now let's say you discover later on that you didn't know the proper surgical technique and that any number of children died on your table because you didn't know the proper surgical technique. You learn that technique. You feel awful about those kids who died on your table, but you still sleep at night because you did your absolute best with the knowledge you had available at that time, and you reconcile it. You never make the mistake again. Maybe even go make amends to the parents. You tell them how stupid you were as a kid when you were first starting out as a surgeon. But you, you grow from the experience. There's room for remorse, but not so much remorse because if you really were doing your absolute best and you got all the training you could possibly have and new surgical techniques were developed, you'll wish they were there when you were younger, but you'll still be able to sleep at night because you know in your heart you did the absolute best job. You following me? Mm-hmm. Keep going. Let's say you were drunk or distracted, and a kid died on the table because of that, that's going to be heavy. That's going to weigh on you. Maybe that'll result in you quitting surgery because you're not qualified. Maybe it'll result in you chasing yourself and becoming a better version of yourself and never making that mistake again. You follow? Mm -hmm. That's me trying to give you an extreme real-life example to help us really flesh out what I'm talking about. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Thank you. Thank you. We can follow up on this offline. I want to make sure that you've understood this completely. I think we've gone to the limit with like three back and forth of what we can do today, but we can discuss this more. You come back at me with something. You know, I thought my answer was good, but I can see it's not setting right with you. And I know that you're smart, and so there must be something lacking in my answer, or we just must need to do a few more rounds. I'm ready to do that with you, okay? Okay.
All right. Anybody else? One more. Yes, loud. I really appreciate it. Hold on. Here. Super loud. I really appreciated your introduction to this chapter. Did you guys hear that? Deuce, give me a thumbs up if you heard what she said. Okay, keep going. Um, because, yes, at first glance, that first question of Arjuna does seem like, what's going on? I thought Krishna just laid it out and it was very clear. But then I was thinking, because I, I read that first question before coming to class, and just last week, you had to go over the second chapter so many times. And we were here, and we heard it, and we have a recording of it. And I heard the recording, and I still didn't get it. And so I really appreciated you bringing this up specifically today. Because, yeah, it really develops that compassion, and especially when you're in a crisis. Our commentators on the Gita are the most inspired people ever. And their commentary both elucidates the literal meaning of the text and also the connotation of the text, but it also finds them on really interpretive flights of fancy. And for people who have faith in them, those are the most beautiful. At the end of the Gita, Krishna asks Arjuna, are your doubts dispelled? And one of our commentators says, Krishna is so dedicated to Arjuna that when he asks him, are your doubts dispelled? If Arjuna says no, Krishna was ready to speak the entire Gita again because he wasn't going to leave his disciple behind. I find that interpretive, poetic commentary or take on that verse, which goes far beyond what you might screw out of the literal language, even this, the context of the language. I find that statement one of the most beautiful statements in the Gita. And certainly an all-good God would do that. And Krishna being in our hearts for all time has already proven that he'll do that to a fault. And so this idea that you know, Krishna's engaging with Arjuna, Arjuna's having a hard time, and Krishna's in it for as long as it takes, that it melts my heart to think about that. And I think it's good. And I think there's some real deep truth to that. And that should reflect in how we interact with our downline and how much time we are willing to spend with them, helping them get through whatever they need to go through. One more, loud. Oh, I was just appreciating and feeling encouraged by you expressing gratitude for the heart mission movement because I feel like my entire life and I think specifically like all schooling and just going to college and all that, I felt like I was always looking for something. Um, I was looking for 
truth, but it, I always felt like I was circling the drain, no matter what I studied, even from really smart people. And it wasn't until I started coming here and listening to you speak that I felt like I was actually listening to something, like the closest thing to truth I'd ever heard. And so hearing you say that makes me feel like, it, it just makes me feel like, okay, I'm on the right path because of that's how you feel. That's actually how I feel. So I feel like Good. Yeah. Yeah, I, the best decision I ever made was to become a Hare Krishna devotee. It's like, even materially speaking, it's like, like I got lucky. I won a lottery. Wouldn't trade it for a trillion dollars. Wouldn't trade it for anything. If I have to die tomorrow, it's like, no regrets. You know? I have regrets about the mistakes I made. I would gladly die tomorrow for having had the privilege of being in the Hare Krishna movement for the last 30 years. You know what I mean? I don't regret that. Yeah, I mean, they just, it's like, yeah, this group of people, they, they kept it together, they preserved with all of its integrity, this timeless teaching. And they delivered it all over the world to your doorstep. It's like a gift from the heavens. All right, Christian Max, thank you for your appreciation. I appreciate what you said. I'm kind of humbled by it, so I'm not going to read it out loud. But thank you very much for your kind words. Okay, we'll see you guys tomorrow or very soon. Thank you so much. Hare Krishna. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.